What a wonderful blessing it is to be able to celebrate God's grace that is always so good to us. And when you begin to think about how good and gracious God has been to us, it kind of changes our perspective a little bit. And uh, today I just want to talk a little bit about that grace and the fact that God's compassion is always there for us, His incredible love to us. I want to go ahead and dismiss the children to Children's Church. Uh, So if any of the kids want to go that way, they're welcome to. And uh, I see Art Swank going that way, so I guess he thinks he's in that group, so that's all right. It is a blessing to be able to celebrate God and what he does for us. Um, Sometimes we see examples of love that go beyond what we would ever expect, and we see that specifically in a story here in Hosea that I had Richard read to you. I want to go ahead and read it one more time. I know he just did a few minutes ago, uh, but sometimes it helps us just to hear it a second time. It says this in Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stone, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in those last days. I will tell you that the book of Hosea is perhaps one of the most beautiful love stories in all of Scripture. It is also perhaps the most heart-wrenching of stories as we see a man who simply loves his bride. Within it all, we also see an incredible revelation about the love of God. You see, it's not merely the story of Hosea and Gomer. It is also the story of God and his people, and more specifically, God and you and me. The first thing that strikes me is that Hosea truly offers a beautiful message to the people of God, but it's a pretty unorthodox way of God getting his point across. There are several instances in the Old Testament where God commands a prophet to perform a symbolic act as a form of prophecy. And sometimes God uses really crazy forms of symbolism. In Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, Ezekiel is commanded to lay on his side for 390 days. How uncomfortable is that? And then after the 390 days, to eat food that is cooked over dung. That's disgusting. But it was to symbolize the coming food shortage during a time of God's judgment that was upon the people of Israel. Also in Isaiah chapter 20, we see that Isaiah was called to walk around naked for three years. And that too was intended to symbolize the fact that the people had put their trust in other nations rather than in God. And they were about to be stripped naked because of it. Then we come upon the story of Hosea, which is the one we're looking at today. Everything about this story is symbolic, but we began in chapter 3 today, and it's kind of the midway point. 
The symbolism actually begins very early when God calls Hosea to go and take an adulterous woman to be his wife. What's interesting about that is God doesn't beat around the bush about what he's doing. He tells Hosea, I want you to go and to marry an adulterous woman. That means you know going into this that it's crazy. This woman is not going to be faithful to you. She's going to cheat. She's going to find somebody else. But I want you to marry her anyways. I got to tell you, I can think of other ways that I would rather have God give a message to God's people than for me to have a horrible marriage. Yet that's exactly what God calls Hosea to do. Interesting, we talked about uh, Isaiah running around naked for three years. Do you think that's really what he wanted to do? Eh, probably not. He probably was, remember last time we talked about uh, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve realizing they were naked and it was referred to as their shameful nakedness. Well, imagine having to run around naked for three years. Probably not the plan that Isaiah had for himself. Or Ezekiel, do you think he really wanted to eat food that was cooked over dung? Seriously? Probably not. Isn't it possible that God could have gotten the message across in a much more simple, less painful manner? And the answer is absolutely he could have. But for whatever reason, he chose to use some of the ugliness of life to communicate the message that needed to be communicated. It's an interesting idea that comes from this, and it's an idea that sometimes perhaps we may not like is it possible that God would allow us to go through some of the difficult things that take place in our lives simply because he is trying to communicate a message to the world around us? Let me ask you in a more specific way. Not just is it possible for God to use some of those things to accomplish some type of good, but is it even possible that God would intentionally make some of those things happen? so that he could get a message across to us. I'm going to answer that question for you with, first of all, yes. Absolutely, God will allow things to happen. He will make things happen simply to get a message across. But I'm also going to tell you, sometimes that's not what's happening. We do know very clearly that God can use anything, and we'll look at some of that. There are examples all throughout the scriptures where God uses pain and suffering to accomplish something good. And there are times that it seems God intentionally allowed bad things to happen in order to serve a greater cause. By the way, when I refer to bad things, your interpretation of bad things may not be the same as my interpretation of bad things. Some of the things that happen, we call them bad because it's not a part of our plan. But the reality is sometimes those bad things turn into really good things. Take the example where an individual loses his or her job. And obviously it's a bad thing. It's a devastating thing. But what happens if because they lost that job, there is now an opportunity for a better job that makes more money? Was that really such a bad thing? Probably not. The point is our understanding of bad may not always be all that accurate. There are many things that happen and God uses those things for good. Consider the story of Old Testament Joseph. We actually have two primary Josephs. There are actually some other guys named Joseph too. But the two that we normally think about is obviously Joseph, Mary's husband. But then the second one is the Old Testament Joseph. Joseph is the favored son of his father, Jacob. Uh, Jacob was a man who, he had many, many sons, which was not all that uncommon in that particular era. Um, but 
Unfortunately, he had a way of showing his favoritism toward his son, Joseph, to the point that his brothers began to hate him. Now, Joseph didn't help the scenario at all. Joseph would have dreams. And after having these dreams, he would then tell people what the dreams meant. And some of them weren't really all that nice, at least to the brothers. He had dreams like every, every one of his brothers and even his mother and father were bowing down in front of him. Well, if you're the brother, do you really want to hear that? You're already a little bit jealous because he's the favored son. Do you really want to hear that one day I'm going to have to bow down before you too? Well, probably not. On one occasion, the brothers reach a point of such frustration and anger and even hatred that they decide to take things into their own hands. They take their brother and they sell him into slavery where he is sent down to Egypt. They go back to their father and declare, your son is dead. He has apparently been killed by wild animals. And there's a part of me that says they were not really lying. You see, here they were. They acted like wild animals when they did this with their brother. And to them, he was dead. They never expected to see him again moving forward. They sell him as a slave to Egypt. They assume the story's over. In fact, you know, this guy's gone. We'll never have to deal with him again. We'll have to deal with the sorrow of dad for a little while because this was his favorite son. But I wonder which one of us will become the favorite son. Maybe it'll be me. They think the story's over. Years would pass and they would see nothing of him. During this time period, Joseph would go from one place to another. He would end up a slave in Potiphar's house, but he would do well while he was there. God's blessing was on him in spite of the difficult situation. But even then, he would be betrayed. He's already been betrayed by his brothers, then he would be betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He would find himself in prison. In prison, once again, not a place you'd want to go, but while he is there, he is still blessed. And he ends up in charge of everything that goes on in the prison. Eventually, he would rise all the way to the point that he would be second in command over everything in Egypt. The only person he had to answer to was Pharaoh. Sounds like a cool story, doesn't it? Now, nobody, none of us would have wanted Joseph's path. Nobody would have wanted to have to be betrayed by his brother, to be sold as a slave. Imagine the brokenness that he experienced along the way. Nobody would have wanted to be falsely accused of being sexually immoral, knowing that you didn't do it, but you're going to jail anyways. And that's exactly what he had to do. Nobody would have wanted to be forgotten in that prison, even when, again, he had done nothing wrong in the first place, but that's exactly what he had to do. But in the midst of it all, God was putting it all together for something good. Well, the time would come that his brothers would show up to Egypt. Joseph has helped Egypt prepare for a great famine. There's no food left in the land and all the Egyptians are ready. And what they've done is they've put all these foods in a storehouse. And anytime they need food, they come to Joseph. But it's not just the Egyptians. The neighboring families and countries come too. And one day, as Joseph is doing his work, he sees a band of brothers coming. And immediately he knows who they are. These are my brothers who betrayed me. These are the ones who, they sold me as a slave. They basically killed me. I was dead to them. I'm going to shorten the story and just fast forward to the end. Joseph helps them. He delivers them, brings them to Egypt, rescues not only them, but even his father. But now dad's about to die. And in Genesis chapter 50, his brothers 
They're worried about what happens when dad dies. Maybe Joseph's been nice to us because dad's here. What happens when he dies? Will he still be nice? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we see Joseph addressing his brothers. He says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, understand what he's saying here. He knows that what his brothers did, it came with really bad intentions. It wasn't good. Nobody likes rejection. Nobody likes betrayal. Nobody likes to suffer. It's not what Joseph wanted. But God put all of these things in place so that Joseph could be in the right position at the right time to not only deliver the people of Egypt, but even to deliver his family that had betrayed him. And just as God put him in that place, Joseph didn't have a reason to be angry over this. He had a reason to be grateful that God would use him in such a mighty way. Let me suggest to you today that there are things that you go through, things that are very difficult that you would not choose for yourself, but it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you, but rather God has put you in a place where you can be used. I'll tell you, this is a very easy conversation when we're talking about Joseph, because we're talking about a guy who lived and died thousands of years ago. Is it possible that even today, God would allow you even coordinate things so that you would have to go through difficulty just so you could accomplish things in a very specific way? Is it possible that God would sort of orchestrate some of your broken relationships? Is it possible that God could orchestrate you becoming sick, seriously ill, is it possible that God could orchestrate someone you love very much having to die? I'm going to tell you, as hard as that sounds, it may be that God has placed you in the position where you are to experience the things that you experience simply because he wants to accomplish something bigger than what you see on the surface. Often God uses our shortcomings and our bad experiences simply to turn something ugly into something good. The story is told about a man named Louis Braille. He's the inventor of the Braille system of reading for the blind. Through a series of organized bumps that represent letters, this system allows people with no light perception to enjoy the same written materials as people with normal sight. Mr. Braille was not born blind, however. He became blind after accidentally stabbing himself in the eye with his father's awl. What, what a horrible thing. What a tragedy. Through this personal tragedy, Mr. Braille's unfortunate accident led him to develop the Braille system, which is still widely used today. Countless numbers of people who are visually impaired or completely blind are still able to enjoy being able to read a book or to know what's being taught simply because one man had to suffer. Do you think he wanted to suffer? No, but it turned into something good. Jesus was called to heal a blind man who was begging. His disciples asked whether it was his, his own fault or if it was his parents' fault. Who sinned that this man would be born blind? I always find it ironic that they would ask if this boy, this man, had been, if he was born blind because of his own sin. 
he hadn't even been born yet and you've already got him, he's blind because of his own sin. Jesus responds in, uh, responds in John chapter 9, he says, this man was not born blind because of anyone's sin, but he was born blind so the works of God could be revealed in him. Why did this man have to suffer? It was an opportunity for God to show how good and faithful and capable he was. You say, I, I don't think I want to be that guy. I'm going to tell you, nobody wants to suffer. And I get that 100%. But what I do want is whatever I experience, whether it be quote unquote, unquote bad or quote unquote good, I want my life to serve as God's tool to truly bring good to the world in which we live. If I have to go through some really horrible things, and that's what it takes to get, say, my brother or my sister into the family of God, then I'll go through some of those horrible things because the good certainly outweighs the bad. The reality is all of us are going to have to go through junk. And I want to stop here and just challenge you for a moment. I'll cover it again at the end, but maybe some of you are going through some really ugly things right now. Maybe you've had some things happen it seems unfair. Maybe someone has betrayed you. You've got sickness that's sitting around the corner right now. There's someone who's about to die. Uh, your job is not what you wanted it to be. You feel like you've been abandoned because you don't have anything. Instead of becoming bitter toward God because maybe things aren't working out the way you planned, maybe embrace the fact that God is setting you up to be used in an incredible way. Hosea never would have chosen to be in an adulterous relationship. Yet Hosea willingly entered into that relationship because he knew that it was going to serve God's purpose. Will you allow your life to serve God's purpose? I know it's fun serving God's purpose. It's kind of like as a, a pastor, you kind of, you want the Lord to call you to places like Hawaii. You know, you want to be a missionary to the Caribbean where you get to hang out on the on the uh, beach and just enjoy everybody's fellowship. You want that kind of calling in your life because you're talking about, you're going to give me good so I can use it for good. Great. We're all in for that. What if God called you to do something that involved great difficulty and sacrifice for the purpose of accomplishing great good? The reality is all of us have been given the opportunity to be used by him. And we may be very unorthodox tools, but we ought to be God's messengers. I don't want God to give me bad, but I think whatever he gives me, I want him to use it for his glory. And I hope that that is your heart as well. I encourage you to become God's unusual, unorthodox tool to proclaim his message. Now back to Hosea. In our passage today, we see God is using Hosea's pursuit to restore his marriage relationship as a symbol for how God will not give up on his adulterous people. It's an image of God's unchanging love for you and me. There's a sense of beauty that perhaps is somewhat missed in our current view of marriage. It was a little bit different at that day and time. Sure, it's still beautiful, 
to see a marriage that is restored when it seemed as if there was absolutely no way that restoration could ever take place. It's actually hard to imagine a husband or a wife offering that kind of grace to a spouse that has been unfaithful. Although I will say I have seen it on multiple occasions and it is an incredibly beautiful thing to see someone who loves their spouse in such a way that even if the individual completely rejected them, almost hated them, to offer that kind of grace and say, yes, but I still love you. It's an incredible thing and you will not see it often, but when you do, it is an incredibly beautiful thing. And we have here with Hosea, clearly that type of incredible selfless love. But it goes beyond that. There's something extra that I don't want us to miss out on here. In order for this marriage to be restored, a price would have to be paid. I'm not talking about the cost of another marriage ceremony. I'm sure that uh, you could probably justify spending more money to start over. But I'm talking about a culture where a marriage requires a financial payment. As a young man marrying a young girl, uh, he would have made this financial payment to the mother's or to the the, the young girl's uh, mother and father, or perhaps even to a brother. Basically, you pay a dowry. You're buying the opportunity to be able to care for this young girl. She is going to be your bride, and basically, uh, you're just uh, you're paying a price for it. In this case. Hosea has already paid the price for his bride. He, he has already been married, but she has chosen to become unfaithful. And in her unfaithfulness, she now finds herself living in the home of another man. And in order for Hosea to bring her back into his home, Hosea would have to go and basically buy her back. Tell you the truth, this is an incredible kind of love because... He knows what he's buying back. She's already shown herself to be that unfaithful, adulterous woman. But he goes to buy her back anyways. What an incredible image of a love that goes beyond any sort of expectation. We're going to talk about expectations there, but I want you to notice, just notice the order here. Hosea goes to buy her back. And then after he buys her back, he will address her and say, hey, now that we have this agreement, you must not be with any other man. You cannot go back to prostitution. You cannot go to anybody else. You must be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. But notice what he did. He paid the price first. And then he said, this is what I ask you to do. You know what he did? While she was still in the midst of her sin, she, he paid the price for her. It's not all that different from what Jesus did. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11 summarizes our condition while emphasizing God's unchanging love for us. This is what it says. Romans 5, 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, 
how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Know that just as Hosea showed a limitless grace-filled love to his wife, even though she is still in the midst of her sin. (laughs) Just as Hosea would do that, God would do the same thing for us. It's not as if somehow we deserve his grace. We're still in the middle of our sin. You know that thing you did last night that nobody else knows about and you kind of want to keep it just between you and God? While you were still in the midst of that sin, you knew you weren't supposed to be doing it, but you did it anyways. While you were in the midst of that sin, Jesus Christ said, I will die for you. I will pay the price for your sin. I know that many of you will probably find yourself going back into that sin, but I will pay the price anyways. It's because I love you. I know the times that you failed me, the I know the times that you've fallen short. I know the times that you've betrayed my trust. But I love you anyways. And because of that, I'm willing to pay the price for your sin. Hosea becomes the most beautiful example of really God's love for us. Because God wasn't content in leaving us in our sin. He wanted us to be forgiven. He wanted us to be made right with him. It's not all that different here. The call that Hosea offers to his wife. It's not all that different from what Paul does. What's the call Hosea offers to his wife? Basically, I'm going to summarize it in two words. No more. Can't keep going back. I've already paid the price. You're my wife. You know how much I love you. You know what I would give to have you with me, but no more. Can't keep going back to the same sin that you went back to before. No more. You need to act like you've been redeemed. You've been my wife. You are loved. Someone has paid the price for you. No more. That's the call that Hosea offers to his wife. Listen to the call that Paul offers. He actually does it in the form of a question. Then he gives you the answer. He says, shall I continue in sin so that grace might abound even more? Actually, he asks the question on multiple occasions, and each time he gives the answer. It's a different answer depending on uh, the, the particular reading where you're at. He says, by no means. Shall I continue in sin so that grace might abound even more? By no means. No way. Absolutely not. Those are the answers he gives. You have been redeemed. Act like you've been redeemed. Live like you're different. Live like you've been transformed. Don't continue to go back to the same sin that enslaved you. Be set free. Be made right. Now, we need to do exactly that, to live in a way like you've really been redeemed. We can't afford to continue with unfaithful devotion, which is the real problem that man has and certainly the people of Israel had. Verse 1 identifies the problem for the Israelites. They've been told that they are to worship only one God. 
They are not to participate in any other type of worship. This means they can't pray to another God. They can't offer sacrifices to another God. Basically, they can't do anything that might bring honor to another God because those are false gods. The passage identifies the fact that they love what's referred to as their sacred raisin cakes. I'm not talking about the cinnamon coffee cake stuff that I ate this week. That's good stuff, but that's not what we're talking about. This isn't just a raisin cake where people are uh, enjoying the flavor of it. This is an act of worship that was intended for one of these false gods. It's apparently something that was to be eaten as a part of this worship, and clearly it displeased God. I know we don't have sacred raisin cakes. We may have raisin cakes, but not sacred raisin cakes now. Or even think about celebrating the God of the sacred raisin cake. But I wonder if there aren't other things that become like sacred raisin cakes to us. Maybe for you it is a relationship. That it becomes so important to you that losing that relationship would be devastating to you. Maybe it's an image that you bear within the community, a certain level of respect and admiration. You are loved by people, and if somehow that image were crushed, well, you're not sure if you'd be able to handle that. Maybe it's your wealth, or it's something that you've worked hard to obtain. Maybe it's a selfish, addictive behavior, something that you do, you feel like you just have to have it. What does your raisin cake look like? Know that any of these things can become a sacred raisin cake to us. Anything that begins to drive who we are, anything that becomes the thing that we love, that we live for, it can become inappropriate for us. So what is your sacred raisin cake? Whatever it is, it needs to go. Let me wrap this up with one final point. Know that God does have very high expectations for you. And he absolutely wants you to be obedient. But also know that his love and forgiveness is only offered because of his unmerited grace. You know, I highlighted a phrase here in our passage this morning. If you have one of those bulletin handouts, you'll see it. Uh, it's a phrase where it simply says, he says that they, talking about God's people, the people of Israel who have been unfaithful, he says they will come trembling to God. As I read that word, I ask myself, why do they tremble? Certainly, It could have been simply because they're coming into the presence of a holy God. All these false gods that they've been worshiping, they've been eating their raisin cakes, and uh, as they've been doing so, they've done so as an act of worship, but it didn't cause them to tremble because, well, you know what? Honestly, those gods were powerless. But the one true living God, it caused them to tremble. In Jonah chapter 1, we see a great story of a, a man of God who chose to do things that were ungodly. As a part of this, he is called to go to the people of Nineveh to share the good news with them. And of course, you think, well, okay, he's a man of God, so he's going to do exactly what he's been told. Actually, he doesn't. Instead, he says, I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as possible because I'm not going there. I don't like those people. They don't like me. I don't want to see them redeemed. He gets on a ship to head the other direction. Problem is, they get out on the water, and as they get out on the the water, 
an incredible storm comes up. Now, these are professional sailors. They know what it's like to be in a storm out on the water. It's not that big a deal as long as you know what you're doing. But this storm was supernatural. It was more than what they could handle. And all of the men on the ship begin to cry out to their many gods. As they cry out, the storm doesn't get any better. In fact, it just gets worse. They go to Jonah, who's on the ship, and tell him, you should cry out to your God as well. Perhaps he will listen. Jonah doesn't want to cry out to his God because he's living in disobedience to God. He doesn't want to go to the presence of the Lord. He knows this is his fault. The people on the ship begin to panic, and here they are. They've been praying to their gods. They're calling on everybody else to pray to their gods. They say, hey, let's cast lots and see whose fault this is. And they cast lots, and it falls to Jonah. And everybody stops, and you picture everybody on the ship stopping and looking at Jonah. And as they look at Jonah, tell us, who are you? What have you done? In Jonah chapter 1, verse 9, listen to the only response he gives. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He didn't really answer their question. He tells them he's a Hebrew and he worships God, but that's it. There's nothing spectacular out of that. I know the God he worshiped, he made the sea and the dry land. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Don't all gods have that power and authority? At least you think so. But listen to the response of the people on the ship. Remember, all he said is, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is how they respond. They were terrified. That's verse 10. They were terrified. Why? They talk to their gods all the time. If they talk to their gods all the time, were they terrified when they talked to their gods? No. You know why? They were powerless. They prayed to their gods, but they saw nothing. You're talking about the one true living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and the dry land both. This is the one true God that we ought to fear. It's almost like the, the challenge between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah as they, the 450 prophets, they made sacrifices and they called upon their God, but their gods did not respond. Actually, Elijah makes fun of their God. Maybe he's using the bathroom right now. Maybe that's why he's not answering you. But when the one true living God responded, people knew that that God was real. They trembled. They were terrified. I don't know for sure why the people of Israel will be called to tremble before God. Maybe it's because of the horrible things that they've done. Maybe they're like Isaiah in chapter 6 where he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Maybe it's because he realizes how sinful he is. They realize how sinful they are. And here they are, having to almost come with their heads tucked down in shame, realizing, man, I've really blown it. Maybe... It's simply because they are in the presence of an almighty, all-powerful, holy God. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Honestly, I don't care 
why you tremble, but I want you to understand the point of what he's saying here. They will come trembling to him because in their moment of greatest desperation, they will realize he is their only hope. And it may be intimidating to be in front of this incredible holy God, but it is the best place that you can be. Because in this place, you will find rescue and you will find peace like you've never imagined before. You may have to go through some of the junk that's a part of this life, but when you turn it over to God, when you come to him, you will see that his grace is an incredibly beautiful thing. It's not something you deserve, but it's something that's beautiful that he has granted to you. I want to challenge you with two things. The first one I've already sort of challenged you with, maybe today you need to change your perspective on some of the junk that you're going through. Some of the bad things that have happened to you, it's so easy to become angry and bitter toward God. Maybe instead of looking with disgust that God would allow these things to happen, maybe what we ought to be doing is saying, God, what are you trying to do through this? Maybe what we ought to be doing is whether we have good or bad, is simply saying, God, I want you to use me in whatever circumstances you place me in today. I want to be your vessel. Change my perspective so that I don't become so focused on the hardship that I cannot see the God who takes me through the hardship. Maybe we need to change our perspective today. Maybe for us, we need to humbly come before our God and receive the grace that he has extended to us. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine because most everyone in here probably comes to church at least Sometimes most of you guys once a week, at least more. But is it possible that perhaps we have a weak understanding of his grace? The idea that he could look upon our sin and forgive us. And then we go back and do the same thing over again. And to know that we can somehow come back and his grace is still there. It's almost hard for us to understand. I'm not telling you you can go and live in sin. Remember, shall we continue in sin so that his grace might abound even more? Absolutely not. It's not what you're supposed to do. But his grace is there. Maybe today what you need to do is embrace the grace that he has offered to you. I'm asking everyone, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes. Lee's going to come up and he's going to play the piano just for a moment. And... Uh, I'm actually going to ask you to stand as, as I uh, pray. I'm going to open up the altar uh, this morning. And as I do so, um, I'm going to challenge you. Maybe you need to change your perspective. You need God to change your perspective. Maybe today you need to embrace the grace that he offers to you. Whatever it is, the altar will be open. I'm going to ask Lee if he would just uh, play through for... Just a, a few moments, the altar is open, and then we'll have a time of prayer to follow.